Open your Bibles or your device (laughs) to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Last week, we looked at the day of Pentecost, uh, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, 10 days since he had ascended uh, there at Bethany after he had told them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. At that point, he started to lift off the ground, was received up into a cloud. And I have to believe that it wasn't just any cloud, but it was the Shekinah glory of God. So here in the upper room, uh, 120 people had gathered. We've looked at that, including uh, Jesus's mother. His own mother was there. His siblings were there. And we looked at the fact that Pentecost, one of the seven national feasts of the Jews, would be the day in which the church would be born. Yeah, this church, not this church particularly, but the church, the big C church, the church of Jesus Christ, of which we are a part. We looked at the significance of this day in God's prophetic timeline. Uh, and how does it, the, the first four feasts found their fulfillment in the first coming of Jesus? Uh, and then after those, the fall feast, Pentecost being the fourth of the, the spring feasts, And then come the fall feasts, trumpets, atonement, tabernacles, uh, which find their fulfillment in the second coming of Christ. We saw that Pentecost is a celebration of the early harvest and trumpets, that next one, the big break between the spring feast and the fall feast, trumpets celebrates the late harvest. Fascinating, interesting how those things line up. We looked at how Pentecost uh, is when the spirit came down. And how at trumpets, the spirit will go up uh, because the church, God's representation on this planet, on this earth is taken up in the rapture, in the rapture of the church. But perhaps the most important thing of all of that is that we can glean is the fact that if we were to look at the prophetic word as a river that flows through time, uh, we have to see that the church today is immersed in that flow. Uh, Jesus, when he visited John there at the beginning of the book of Revelation, he said, I am he, him who was and who is and is to come. We see that. The church celebrates the same Lord who was and is and is to come. So we're truly living in the midst of what the Bible puts forth is redemptive history. It starts with the fall of, of man with, there in, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And, and God had created all of these things and, and given man dominion over the earth. Said, yeah, you go ahead and name all the animals, Adam. That's good. All of that. And it didn't take long for man to fall. And from that point, the entire word of God is dedicated towards God's work of pulling man back into relationship with him. That's redemptive history, and we're part of it. And and folks, you've got to see that. This is not something that we look at that's far away from, that's outside of us. If you belong to Christ, if your heart belongs to him, you are part of that. And and, and we've got to see that, especially in the days in which we live where there's so much craziness and, and goofy stuff going on. I draw great comfort from the knowledge that God has this. 
So we wrapped up last week in looking at the first four verses of Acts chapter 2. And in them we saw that God had chosen to manifest his Holy Spirit to this group of people, that 120, first through their hearing a sound as of a mighty rushing wind. It doesn't say it was a mighty rushing wind. It says as of, essentially, Luke is trying to describe these events because they are supernatural things that are going on. And he's trying to put that to frame it in a way that we could understand. So he says, this is the first was the sound from heaven, the sound uh, as of a mighty rushing wind. And then secondly, we saw the spirit manifesting because uh, they saw tongues as of fire. He doesn't say they were fire, but tongues as of fire that were resting on each one's head. So a supernatural thing to hear, a supernatural thing to see. And then finally, we looked at the miracle of the spirit coming upon each one as they began to speak with other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance, is what it says. So you're going along, and all of a sudden, you begin to speak in a language that you don't know. That's miraculous, obviously. So as we begin today in verse 5, I want you to notice how quickly uh, the work of the Holy Spirit spreads. It doesn't take long. I mean, these guys are there, they're in the upper room, this wind, this fire, the, the coming upon all happens. And within minutes, what Jesus had told them back at Bethany, when they said, tell us, you know, when are you, (laughs) when are you going to set up your kingdom? When will these things be? And he said, it's not for you to know. Essentially, he said, never mind. But the Holy Spirit will come and you will not, you're going to, maybe, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so here, it doesn't take long from the time that the Spirit is given to where Peter stands up. We're going to look at that as we move through this this morning and begins to be his witness in Jerusalem. Now, we'll see that in the next several chapters, uh, all the way through chapter, uh, the end of chapter 7, uh, where, Peter, or where Stephen is martyred and all of that, that the ministry in Jerusalem takes place. And we'll be looking at that in the weeks and months ahead. When we get to chapter 8, that's when the outreach to Samaria takes place. When we get to chapter 10 and the Apostle Paul, that's when the uttermost parts of the earth takes place. So what Acts is showing us, what, it's, what Luke records for us is the fulfillment beginning here in chapter 2 of what Jesus had said. You'll be my witnesses first in Jerusalem and Judea and then Samaria to the uttermost parts. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of detail here. There's a transition that takes place from the upper room, this where the 120 are there, uh, to a huge crowd of, pe- crowd of people that, that is gathered. And they're gathered for the feast, and they're in Jerusalem, but it doesn't tell us that, okay, the guys left the upper room, they walked down to the temple or whatever, but we have to understand that as the scene shifts, the probable location of this huge group would be the Temple Mount. It's one of the only places in Jerusalem that could contain an enormous crowd of people, out of which 3,000 people surrender their lives to Christ. So let's pick it up in verse 5. It says, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. Remember, this is taking place during Pentecost, and Luke is very specific He's making direct reference to the Jews who were in Jerusalem for the feast. Uh, He also makes a distinction here between the Jews who considered themselves Jews by heritage only 
and those who were devout worshipers in Judaism. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's an application there for us. The same distinction needs to be made in our lives and in our day as well. Uh, in our men's group last Tuesday night, uh, somebody mentioned the amount of people that call themselves Christians. And my response was, yeah, a great many people claim to be Christians and some actually are. But that's true. Uh, there's a clear difference between someone who is a deist. Oh, I believe in God. Well, the Bible tells us that the demons believe and they shudder. Uh, and someone who, who is a Christian, someone who has given their life to Christ. As we see in verse 21, somebody who has called upon the name of the Lord, trusting in the atoning work of Christ. So the devout men mentioned here would have included proselytes. And what a proselyte is, is somebody who is not born Jewish, but somebody who came from outside and was converted to Judaism now practices the religion of Judaism, has been circumcised and all that. Interestingly, there is no mention of Gentiles. A Gentile is somebody that's not a Jew. Uh, there's no mention of them receiving the gospel until we get to Acts chapter 10. So we know that salvation goes first to the Jews. Now, the population, I want to under, set the scene here for what's going on. The population of Jerusalem is estimated in the first century to have been around 100,000 people. It was a large city. But because this is one of the three mandatory feasts, we talked about that last week when we looked at the chart, uh, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, uh, the population at Pentecost is estimated to have swelled because people would make pilgrimages from all over the Roman Empire to between 900,000 and a million people. I mean, this is a big crowd. Uh, it was also their custom. Interestingly, I was studying up on Jewish customs and uh, one of the things that I saw was that elderly Jews could emigrate to Jerusalem uh, so that they could die on Jewish soil. Uh, so Jerusalem, the point is, it would have been filled with synagogues that catered to the different peoples that came, uh, those from other nations. Uh, and the reason was some spoke Aramaic, that was the language of the day, some spoke Greek, uh, some spoke Egyptian and so on. He'll go into a list of nations here. So uh, the, the purpose in, in that was so that they'd be able to communicate freely uh, in their native language. So the city, uh, understand, it would have been bustling with activity. The hills surrounding the city would have been filled with tents, makeshift dwellings. Where do you put a million people? Uh, and it was, uh, this was a huge scene. It was a hectic scene in many ways. There were people everywhere. And into this, the spirit of God came. Fascinating the way God sets it up. Verse six. And when the, the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. So a, a, a crowd quickly gathered. They were attracted by this sound, whatever the sound was. We don't know. But this sound, this otherworldly sound, uh, and it was perhaps the sound of the wind. Maybe it was the sound of these people speaking in other languages. Again, uh, we don't know. But either way, when the crowd comes together, they heard the Christians speaking in their own native languages, their own tongue. And that's simply what tongue means. It, it, it's, the Greek word is dialectos, and in their own dialects, in their own languages. Uh, and 
that was confusing. I mean, think about it. You walk into a room and some people are talking and you know that they speak a language different than you, but as they speak, you hear them in your language. That's what's going on. And that's what's going on with a large group of people. So they are really, they're kind of like, what on earth is going on with all of this? So apparently the Christians, we don't, again, we don't understand the transition. Uh, maybe the crowd heard the, the Christians speaking from the windows of the upper room. I tend to believe that they actually went out uh, and went down to the temple courts because, again, the temple courts were enormous and they would be able to hold, and that would be the place to go. The temple opened at nine in the morning, and we know from the, the text here, it's nine in the morning. And that would be the time of the morning sacrifice. It would be the time that they swung the gates open to the temple and uh, the people would go in. And they could go and they could stand in the court of the Gentiles or even go past what was called the Sorig and go into the place that was reserved for the Jews. Because again, what the, the group that we're talking about here are Jews. So the scene shifts and <laughs> we know that the Holy Spirit's being poured out. We just don't know how uh, these people heard. We, we don't know how they got from the upper room to the temple, but we trust that that came about somehow. I talked about alleged problems in God's word a couple of weeks ago, and that we don't have that noted for us does not in any way invalidate that this is the word of God. I received a call uh, on the church line uh, recently from a woman who began our conversation, and she had a defensive tone, just when I answered and said Calvary Chapel, and she said, uh, kind of in a hostile way, she said, do you speak in tongues in your church? And I was like, wow. <laughs> and I just kind of politely commented that that was a really interesting way to begin a conversation. <laughs> and I asked why she wanted to know. It's a fair question. I mean, somebody says, do you? <laughs> okay, what, what's your point? Uh, and her response was that tongues is in the Bible. And I said, I agree. And she said, I believe that the gifts of the spirit, are, and I told her also that I believe the gifts of the spirit are for today. But it was at that point, she became very aggressive. And, and then she kind of shouted into the phone, tongues is proof that somebody has the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I wanted to say something, but I couldn't because she didn't, she didn't pause much. And so without allowing time for a response, she went into a litany of what I would describe as hyper-charismatic, sensationalized ideas as to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I've heard it before. I'll hear it again. So I listened. When she stopped yelling into the phone at that point, I simply said, tongues is a manifestation of the Spirit. It's not the manifestation of the Spirit. Actually, if you want to look at one thing that's a manifestation of this, that, that's the proof of the, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, that is love. It has nothing to do with spiritual gifts. It has everything to do with the fruit of the Spirit. It's love. And I wasn't getting much love from her. So anyway, she hung up on me and I just sat staring at my phone and I prayed for her. And I guess I, I was just asking God, reveal yourself, reveal your word to her and that she could come away from the hype and the abuse that surrounds the ministry of the Holy Spirit. My point is this. 
is what was going on here in Acts chapter 2 a supernatural manifestation of the Spirit? Yeah, it was. Is what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14 with regard to spiritual gifts the result of a supernatural manifestation of the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. The answer is a simple yes. And folks, there's no small amount of controversy with regard to the work of the Spirit and to the manifestation of that work. There will always be people who divide because what you're talking about is the supernatural. It means beyond the natural. And so rather than accept it by faith that that's what he's doing, very often people scratch their head or worse, they dismiss out of hand that God could have anything to do with that. We can actually disagree and maintain unity among us. Uh, That's the mature approach. Uh, It's the way that the Lord set this up. We can have disagreement in the church within our four walls and still love each other and still see that that manifestation of the Holy Spirit is supreme. That manifestation, the love that we have, that he has imparted in our hearts is above all of the disagreements and the, the, the different opinions that we might have. I love that God set it up that way. So don't send me an email. You can if you want. <laughs> but if you call me and you say, do you speak in tongues at your church? I probably, no. <laughs> anyway, that was just, I felt really bad because people get deceived. They open themselves up to extra biblical doctrines and they get deceived. And uh, unfortunately, the woman I spoke with clearly was. My heart really went out. Yeah, I get you get over the fact that she's being cranky. It's a tough place. So here's what we know from the text here. As the people who had been in the upper room were speaking first in different languages, because it says they were speaking in different languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then in their own dialect, those who heard were from a number of foreign lands. We're going to see 15 that Luke calls out here. Uh, And they understood that what was being said was in their own native language. Verse 7. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are are not all these who speak Galileans? Now, you got to understand that Galilee, Israel or Palestine in those days, it was divided into three sections. The northern section was Galilee. That was definitely the blue-collar area. Our hero, Jesus, came from Nazareth and Galilee. And then in the middle of the country was Samaria, and that was the, the Jews did not like the Samaritans because largely what had happened was that when the Assyrians had invaded the northern part of Israel centuries before, they had transplanted people from a bunch of other lands into that area, and they ended up with sort of a half-baked version of Judaism and and sort of a half-breed people called the Samaritans. In the southern part was Judea. Now, Judea was the white-collar area. That's Well, Jerusalem is considered in the New Testament in that area, although Jerusalem is actually within the boundaries of the tribe of Benjamin, not Judah. But Judea was the southern section, and that's where Jerusalem was. So, um, the Judeans, they were proud. <laughs> they, they insisted that their dialect was a lot more precise, whereas the Galileans was pretty sloppy. We were talking with some friends after church last week, 
having lunch and we were talking about in Britain that some of the, the terminology that's used is because they have lazy speech. It'd be kind of like that, but it'd be more so if you think about it in the United States, it'd be like understanding the difference between someone who speaks high English, you know, aristocratic, classical English, and the way that they speak in the backwoods of the deep south. So, I mean, those are the differences in the dialects. And that dialect in the Galileans was very evident to the people who were hearing them speak. They're thinking, these guys are Galileans. What are they saying? Remember now, remember when Peter was in the middle of denying Christ there in Matthew 26. And, and somebody says, aren't you a Galilean? They picked up on his accent. And, and so it's interesting here that the people say... <laughs> aren't these guys Galileans? Listen to what they're saying. Listen to how they're speaking. Listen to these. I'm hearing them in my own language. Verse eight. And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia. Now I'm going to stop there for a second. Somebody came up to me a couple of weeks ago with our, the introduction in Acts and they said, Mesopotamia. And I said, oh, I did it again. I have, since I was in Bible school, I get the names. I don't, I'm not confused with where they are of Mesopotamia, which is the cradle of civilization. I mean, like somewhere in Iraq, you know, the Tigris, Euphrates, all that. And Macedonia, which is the region north of Achaia where Greece was. And I guess through that, that whole study a couple of weeks ago, I kept saying uh, Mesopotamia. And in my brain, I was saying Macedonia, so... There, I've corrected it. <laughs> you see, these guys, they're dwelling in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, uh, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, somebody from the island of Crete, and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. I think that's awesome. So Luke names 15 different geographical locations. Clearly here, he, he states that the citizens of those places heard Peter and the others declare God's wonderful works in the languages that they could understand. Don't need to go to the Egyptian synagogue for this one. Note that at this point too, the believers were praising God. This, they were not sharing the gospel at this point. They were simply responding to this miraculous supernatural event filled now with the Holy Spirit. And, and their only response was worship. Again, I love what's going on here. So after the initial shock of it all, uh, it appears these men and women worship God as they marveled at now being filled. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and I don't have love, it profits me nothing. Underscore nothing. Uh, I, I shared that phone call with my wife afterwards, and she said, did you ask her how she was doing in the area of love? <laughs> I said, no. I didn't think of it at that time. It's one of those, you know, I wish I had said kind of things. But clearly, these are the tongues of men. Uh, he, he, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels in, in 1 Corinthians 13, and, and there are angelic languages, don't get me wrong, but this is not that. These are the tongues of men. So 
Is there controversy around this? Yeah, there is. And depending on what group you're part of or, or all of that, there may be a lot of controversy. However, there is such safety in sticking to the word of God or just simply giving you what he says. I mean, doling out what his word has to say. And what he's saying here, while it's controversial in a lot of circles, I really don't struggle with it all because it's based in God's word. And I understand that there are things that are going on here that go beyond our understanding in the natural realm. And my response to that, theologically speaking, is big deal. That's what happens when you're dealing with a God who dwells outside of time. We get hung up sometimes with the miraculous. And I've talked with people over the years, often in depth, that struggle with the miraculous. And it's like, look, if you just go by what your senses tell you, you could miss heaven. Seriously, we got to have a place in our hearts where we understand that God works beyond the natural. This is part of what he invented. The laws of physics, he owns them. When he decides to do a miracle, and we'll talk about that next week, signs and wonders and all of that, it's because he wants to bend the laws of physics for a moment to demonstrate who he is. And that's why Jesus did that. That's why he did the miracles. It wasn't to put on a show. It was to say, look, what's harder to do? Heal a a lame guy on the Sabbath or to forgive your sins? So I have no trouble with the supernatural, with the miraculous. The Holy Spirit descended on Jerusalem that day in a supernatural, miraculous way, way beyond what we understand in the natural. And that's a good thing. He did it on purpose. Verse 12, so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what could this mean? (laughs) Interesting. The word here for amazed, it's an interesting word in the original. And it, it literally means that they were beside themselves. Okay, so all of this stuff is happening. They hear these language, they hear the people speaking and their understanding in their own language and all of that. And, and they are totally, <laughs> in, in our vernacular, the vernacular of my day anyway, they were blown away. They were like, what on earth does this mean? What, what's going on? Added to that, they were greatly perplexed. They had no point of reference uh, as to what was going on. And they couldn't say, okay, well, let me look here. Oh, I see. No, this had never happened before. But shortly they would understand. And many of their lives would be permanently changed from that day forward. Verse 13. Others mocking said, they're full of new wine. Talk about that next week because when Peter starts to address them, well, he starts to address them here. We'll look at that. But as he goes on, he says, look, it's not new wine. It's nine o'clock in the morning. Come on, they're not... (laughs) they're not hammered by now. But the point is, is in come the doubters, the mockers. They're still around. As we'll see in verse 22, there is a purpose. There is a point to this. And I don't believe that the mockers are only struggling with something that they didn't understand. And you'll see that as you share Christ, as you, as you share the cross, as you share the resurrection, very often, I believe here that there's a strong component uh, insofar as someone who intentionally diminishes something that is very obviously from God. Because serving their fallen nature and in their self-deception, spiritual blindness is real. 
they reason that they don't have to deal with the one behind it or become accountable to him. And that happens. Uh, I, I knew a guy that uh, he did prison ministry for a number of years. And, and he said, you know, John, I, I've had, yeah, he said, yeah, I've had guys. I was, he was a guard in the prison and he, and he used that as a ministry uh, in a, a tough prison in Susanville, California. And he said, yeah, I was a guard there. And he said, it wasn't that often where somebody would just get up in my face. And say, yeah, yeah, you, you don't, you know, don't give me that. He said, most of the time, what these guys would do is deflect. And I said, what do you mean, Bill? His name was Bill. And, and, and he said, I would share the gospel with them. And they would simply do this. And they would just, that word coming at them, rather than have it go in, they would simply just deflect and, and say, well, that's nice for you or something like that. And, and yet they didn't want to do business with God for a variety of reasons, the primary one being unbelief. And that they would simply deflect. It has to do with becoming accountable to God, with realizing I'm not the star of my own movie. The earth, the, the universe doesn't revolve around me. That God is the one who gives me breath. He is the one who gives me life. He holds my life in his hand. Every heartbeat. And when I come to recognize that and I open my ears to the truth of his word, well, then he's got something to work with. Until then, I'm just pushing back. I am literally self-deceived by not recognizing that there is someone way bigger than I am that stands outside of time, that stands outside of space, and yet loves me enough to reach into this mess and save my soul. That's the same for you. In 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4, Peter writes, Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. It's exactly what I'm sharing with you guys. They're not coming with their mocking because they don't want to hear what you're saying. They want their lusts more than they want God. We're told in the Gospel of John that Jesus came as a light into the world, but the, the but that that men rejected the light because their deeds were evil following their own lust. And they loved darkness more than they loved light. He says in verse 4, 2 Peter 3, they say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything continues just as they were from the beginning of creation. Oh, don't give me that. That's deflect. Oh, yeah, yeah, that religion stuff, that might be good for you. Deflect. Oh, I understand, but my God deflect. Interesting. The problem with this line of thinking is willful ignorance. And I mean willful ignorance. Choosing ignorance will never be a valid excuse before God. Doesn't work that way. Next week, as we get further into Peter's statements here at Pentecost, before uh, this huge crowd of people, we'll see just that. He, he very directly and forcefully lets them know just where they're at and, and that they're without excuse. I mean, several times in, this, in his first sermon, he pokes them and he says, this Jesus whom you crucified, and then he goes on a bit and he says, yeah, this Jesus whom you crucified, whom you strung up, and there it tells us that they were pierced, they were cut to the heart. Conviction of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about it. So as we move on here, the following, this part, it's one of my absolute favorite passages in God's word. 
uh, in response response to the mark, mockers that, that are coming and, and saying, oh, yeah, these guys are drunk. Peter steps to the front and he speaks up. And, and, and as he does, I want to note something. I want you to, to look at the difference in Peter. Here, filled with the Holy Spirit, way different from the Peter that we've come to affectionately know through the Gospels. It's the same Peter that in Matthew 16, that, to whom Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, you don't know what spirit you're of. It's the same Peter who thought forgiving somebody seven times was a pretty spiritual thing. St. Peter told Jesus the night before he was crucified that he wasn't like the other disciples and he would never abandon him. The St. Peter, I might add, that took it upon himself to figure out who Judas' replacement would be. You could fall on one side of that or, or another. But to be fair, it's also the St. Peter that after he was with the guys there at the Sea of Galilee, and this is before these events in Jerusalem, Jesus had said, stay in Jerusalem. And Peter said, I'm going fishing. And that wasn't recreation. It was a career choice. He said, man, I'm done. I'm leaving. And the other guys followed him because Peter was a leader. And there at the the shore uh, was Jesus, had a fire going, some fish on the fire. And he goes, hey, (laughs) how much have you caught? And they said, we fished all night, caught nothing. Well, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. And when Peter realized, and he, he shouted out, it's the Lord. And it says that he <laughs> got rid of his tunic, dove into the lake, and because he loved Jesus, was the first one at the shore. He's often seen as the guy that intended well, <laughs> but my son-in-law said it perfectly one time. I've shared this before, but I crack up every time I think about it. He said, you know, John, I love that Peter is who he is in God's word. And I said, why is that, Matt? And he said, because Peter proves that God sets the bar pretty low. And folks, that's true. I look at my life and I go, right on. I get it. The point is, there's a remarkable difference. You see that in his fearlessness. We see that in his command of the scripture. Peter wasn't walking around quoting God's word before this. And I mean, he has command of the scripture. He speaks it with authority because he's been filled with, baptized in, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Remarkable change immediately in his life. Verse 14, but Peter, standing up with the 11, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And heed my words. I read that and I just go, wow, this guy's got their attention. He says, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, remember, it's Pentecost. The rabbis traditionally would gather a crowd. The rabbi would sit and the people would stand. That's not what Peter does. We're told that he stood boldly. He spoke loudly, began to proclaim the gospel and God's word with authority. Notice in verse 14, he says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. And and I have to think that Peter is speaking in his native language, that he's speaking Galilean at this point. He's talking about, he says, look, you local guys. Now the rest would hear this in their native language. 
Remember his words as he gave uh, Jesus' words, as he, as he called these guys and, and gave them the great commission just a few days before. He said they're going to start in Jerusalem. Guess what? That's what's happening here in Acts chapter 2. As we study, we'll see again that, that chapter 8, the Samaritans from 10 forward, the uttermost parts. But here, Peter stands up. There's no sermon prep. He doesn't have notes. He's just filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and I would imagine that moments before, before this, that Peter had no idea that God was going to press him into service, standing up to address this huge crowd. This is a remarkable, remarkable moment. Don't miss the significance of it, both in Peter's life and in the way that God is going to use him. I also want to give you a note of caution, and this is just a side. I don't know of anybody in this church that's into weirdness with the Holy Spirit, but there's nothing in this passage to indicate that people were acting as though they were intoxicated. All right? I've seen the heresy of people allegedly being drunk in the spirit firsthand. It's sickening. (laughs) It's a practice used by those who would purposely misinterpret the scriptures and grandstand. They pull attention off of the spirit's work and onto themselves. Uh, There was a church across the street from where Stacy and I lived in California that had gotten into the whole Bethel theology thing and all of that. And we looked online and there was a, a, a video of the pastor and his son stumbling around babbling and and making the claim that they were drunk in the spirit. And and I was shocked. It happens. That is not the spirit's work. Jesus says in John chapter 16, you will know him because he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Also, he will guide you into all truth. Also, he will glorify me. The Spirit's work will look like Jesus. When we say in our church sort of a tagline we, we use here is we're learning to think like Jesus is because of the work of the Spirit in our lives. We're not learning to act drunk so that we put on a show. We're not learning to go around railing on people because they don't believe exactly the way we do. We're not learning. And you can just fill in the blank, folks. We're learning that what it is to be conformed to the image of his son can only happen one way, through the agency, the power, the work of the Holy Spirit dwelling within, and now being a cleansed vessel because I have put my life in the hands of God through the work of Christ, period. In the midst of all that's going on with this sound, as of a rushing wind and the visual, as of tongues of fire and the the multiple languages being spoken here, I think it's fascinating and wonderful that Peter essentially says, I know, let's have a Bible study. <laughs> That's what he does. He gets up, he, he forcefully addresses this crowd, and he says, let's, let's look at what the scripture has to say. Folks, that should be a mark of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives as well. He goes on to quote the second chapter of Joel, uh, one of the later prophets in Israel's history. Now, we don't know a lot about Joel in the time that he prophesied. It's probable that he was one of the prophets who served after the the people returned from exile in Babylon. Uh, Many, if not most, ascribe his time of ministry there as a post-exilic prophet. But we know that he's included in God's word regardless of when he's located. So in verse 17, this is from Joel chapter 2. 
He says, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. Guess what Peter's doing as he quotes this? <laughs> He's prophesying. Prophecy, folks, it has two sides. One is predictive prophecy, and that's where someone foretells the, the future so that when it comes about, guess who gets the glory? That's what Joel was doing. The other is foretelling, and, and that's what Peter's doing. He is speaking forth the scripture, and, and as I stand before you every Sunday, I am foretelling, I am prophesying, and I do that. I'll tell you what, somebody was asking me about uh, what pastors go through this last week. And I said, it, it's, it's the hardest thing you'll ever love. And I tell people, if you're not called, do not even try. Folks, I am utterly reliant. I don't want to make this about me, but I am utterly reliant on the Holy Spirit. Because if he doesn't move in me, and as I spoke, speak forth God's word, I mean it when I pray, Lord, let them hear your voice and follow you. That has to happen. Now, one of the dominant patterns that we see in prophecy is that there's often a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And I'll explain. It's a, it's the quotation from Joel is an example of what's known as the law of double reference. And you don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to remember what that means, but just understand, or what it says, the, the, the term itself, but understand what's being intended here. The principle comes into play when a Bible prophecy has a partial fulfillment at one time and a complete fulfillment at another. The near fulfillment in this case was God's judgment that was coming upon ancient Israel. That's what Joel is prophesying to. He's prophesying to his contemporaries in the land at that time. In the midst of that judgment, God was promising a future blessing that he would pour out his spirit in the last days. So, that leads to the question, well, was it the last days when Peter spoke this? Yes, it was. I believe it was. And from the time that Jesus ascended and the angels remarked that he'll come back the same way as he left, it's been the last days. So in the same way that we believe in our day, we're in the last days. Do I know when he's going to return? No, I don't. It might be a hundred years. I don't think so, personally. As I look at God's word and I look at the things that have been fulfilled just in this generation, I look at the birth pains happening all around us. But you know what? I'm going to stick to it. He says, look, live in the expectancy that he's going to return soon. That's the point. When they asked Jesus both times, he said, don't worry about it. Just be ready. So the question becomes not when is he going to return, but are you ready for his soon return? The point here is Peter was connecting this ancient prophecy of Joel to what was happening around them that very day. Now, one aspect of the Holy Spirit's work in us is that of confirming his word to us. As he does, and as we apply God's word to our lives, we gain clarity and insight on how to live in the present, regardless of when the Lord returns. So back to the near and far fulfillment and prophecy, um, as I mentioned, Peter believed that he was living in the last days then. As such, he sees this entire passage from the prophet Joel as applying to the people of the first century. And it did. 
The first part of that which Joel had prophesied was being fulfilled as the Spirit was poured out. Now, as Joel continues, there's a second part of this prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. He says in verse 19, I will show wonder, quoting Joel 2, I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Wow. So as Peter, now remember, you've got to locate yourself first century day of Pentecost, Peter standing up before the crowd saying, look, God promised to pour out his spirit in the last days. And let me tell you about that. From Peter's point of view, he's looking out to the end of this prophecy. He's wondering if that's, if it's soon in his life that the Lord would return and these second set of things would be fulfilled. He looked forward to the fulfillment of these things, but he wouldn't have known that there would be a division between the near and the far. That was, was fulfilled here on Pentecost Sunday and that which is yet to be fulfilled in his life, that which is yet to be fulfilled in our lives as we await the return of Christ. This is a good example of what it is to be ready, to be waiting. Now, remember, it had only been 10 days since Jesus' men had asked him when he would return, when he would set up his kingdom. And his, as I mentioned earlier, his answer had been, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And he would go on to tell them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, beginning there, beginning right here, right now, minutes after the Spirit is poured out. Naturally, Peter's linking this prophecy of Joel to their present circumstance of the Spirit. Uh, coming upon the people. Verse 21, uh, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not might be saved, not could be saved, but whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter's words on this Pentecost Sunday 2,000 years ago would result in 3,000 souls stepping from death to life, from darkness to light from lacking the power to live their lives to now possessing an entirely new dynamic. The ability to now walk in the power of the Holy Spirit of God who is now indwelling them, who has come upon them, given them power. Same applies to us. This started on Pentecost, but it didn't end on Pentecost. The work of the Holy Spirit continues to this day and it will continue until what we see prophesied, what we see through the Feast of Trumpets until the Spirit is taken up. The reason the Spirit's taken up is because the church is taken off of the planet. And at that point, Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2, that the man of lawlessness will be revealed. It will usher in the Great Tribulation. Tough stuff. But the promises of God, the promise of the Spirit, remains true to this day. The question then becomes, as we bring it home, as we begin to wrap up, Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Perhaps you're struggling. Perhaps your heart has been drifting. Perhaps you're wrestling things out. Yeah, we call upon the name of the Lord for salvation, for that initial filling. But we can also call upon the Lord anytime, any day. There have been times in my life where I have recommitted my life to him because I've realized, because the Spirit has convicted me in an area of my heart or in an aspect of my walk. Stay current with him. 